Welcome back to Outside the System. Today's episode is a discussion with David Montgomery and Anne Beclay, the authors of What Your Food Ate. If you follow me on Twitter, you've seen me raving about this book for a couple months now. It is truly the most impactful book I've read in 2023. The core premise of the book and this episode is that the quality of the food we eat is greatly dependent on what our food is eating. In the case of plants, that means the quality of the soil matters. For animals, it means the quality of the food they're eating is the main factor in how nutritious they are. We get into a lot of nuance in this conversation around things like organic foods, farming practices, and downstream health effects. Make sure to check out the show notes if you want to dive deeper into any of the topics we discuss. Let's get into the episode. David and Anne, I have been so excited for this episode. Uh, I'm so glad you guys agreed to come on. So uh, just to, to reiterate for everyone, David and Anne wrote What Your Food Ate, and it's probably the best book I've read in 2023 so far and has been a huge positive impact uh, on my life. So when they agreed to do the interview, I was just thrilled. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey, well, thank you. I'm glad you love the book. We're happy to talk to you about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Glad to be here. Yeah, so it was recommended to me by uh, a friend of mine, uh, Justin Mares, who I think you guys may have connected with at, at some point. Uh, I was catching up with him, and he recommended it as the most impactful book he'd read in 2023. So uh, I was like, well, with that recommendation, I have to pick it up. And uh, it, it certainly lived up to the hype. Sometimes books don't quite live up to the hype when people recommend them like that, but uh, yours certainly did. So maybe the best place to start um, for, for anybody who doesn't know is just kind of a simple overview of the, the main premise um, in the book, which I, I, you know, I would actually word it for myself. I'd word that it's, it's basically the food that we consume is all consuming its own food because it's all part of the same sort of energy ecosystem. Uh, and we're not, as a society, we're not really thinking about what our food eats. And so this is essentially the premise behind the book. But would love to, you know, you guys can obviously give a much deeper uh, overview of, of, of the book there. Yeah. Wow, Neil, I guess you did read the book because that is kind of the punchline there. I mean, people, I, I think everybody gets that, say, you know, chicken, cow, you know, your, your kind of general livestock certainly have a diet because we watch them eat things. Um, when it comes to plants or crops, that's a little, uh, I wouldn't say it's counterintuitive, but because it's happening, uh, you know, down in the soil, a place that we can't see, it's harder for people to sometimes grasp or think about our crops actually having a diet as well. And that, uh, depending on that diet, uh, different things end up in plants that end up in the human diet. And a lot of, of that is mediated by the microbial partners that plants have that are all congregating around the root system of a plant. And so depending on, on how that whole process is going, plants are either suffused and imbued with uh, you know, a nice phytochemical profile uh, certain minerals and vitamins. When those partnerships, though, you know, might be faltering or there's practices that are impacting, negatively impacting populations of soil microbiota, 
then certain things are not ending up in our plant foods that make it onto our plate. So what David and I did in this book is we, we basically are trying to connect the health of the soil. Cause when everything is working normally, you know, high functioning, just like it's supposed to in the soil, our crops get what they need. If you're uh, grazing animals out in diverse pastures, they're getting what they need into their tissues. And then as those things come into the human diet, that means that that is the setup for us. That's how we're getting um, micronutrients. So this is, this is both minerals and vitamins. That's how we're getting an appropriate kind of fat balance um, into our diet through the kinds of animal foods that we, that we consume. And there's also phytochemicals. This is how phytochemicals come into our bodies and also microbial metabolites, which is a whole new area in terms of um, kind of nutrition and health that, that is really sort of just, we're, we're, we're beginning to scratch the surface of that. But in, in, in other words, you know, from soil health through our crops, through our animals and into our bodies, we really need to pay attention to this way more in agriculture and I also, I also think the medical world needs to be far better informed about these connections. Yeah. So, so we've all heard, you know, you are what you eat, right? That, that old saying. We're, we're trying to challenge readers with this book to think, you know, a couple steps back further in the chain uh, along the way of how all the things that get into our bodies get, get into the foods that we then eat and sort of why the way that we raise our food whether crops or animals, actually influences how healthful the, the resulting food is for our bodies. Yeah, I mean, there's so many, <laughs> so many different directions we could go on this. I mean, it's, uh, it's amazing. One, um, one, I guess, place to start would be, and I think people uh, have felt this themselves when they realize that the taste you know, of certain fruits and vegetables just mm -hmm. tastes so much different than other fruits and vegetables. And, you know, there's a story that I've, I've previously shared in the podcast where my grandmother has lived in India her whole, her whole life. And she was visiting us in the U S for a couple of years uh, during COVID. And she always commented how uh, tasteless our apples are compared to the apples that, that she grew up with, or that she eats on a daily basis. So she would always say they taste like water. Uh, and I actually, after reading your book, I'm realizing that probably our apples are probably bred for weight and water weight is probably how they're, they're, they're sort of optimized. So the phyto con phytonutrient content density is probably just abysmal compared to smaller. She would also comment on how large our apples are. Uh, so that was the other, that was the other thing. Uh, so yeah, it was just, it's very interesting that I think you can actually taste this difference. And I think we've all, as, you know, our taste buds are probably adapted to phytonutrient content. So um, maybe that's like an, another jumping off point. I, uh, I, I feel like after reading your book, it becomes actually pretty obvious when you taste, you know, certain, you know, you eat something fresh, fresh tomato versus a tomato that's been kind of been sitting in uh, a grocery store for a long time. Totally different, different uh, food there. It's not even the same category. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, you know, your grandmother, this story about your grandmother and her ability to, to see that apples in, you know, the place that she's used to eating them are different than the ones here and that ours on the whole tend to be 
not nearly as flavorful. We've, we've heard that. Um, we've heard that before. And, and we also know that part of the flavor and taste profile that's coming through on foods has to do with, uh, with practice, with the practices, the farming practices. And so if, if we, you know, overly scuttle, that's about as simple a way as I can put it, but we, you know, we overly scuttle how, uh, the, the, the bacteria and the fungi and the other microbes associate with roots, the, the less we scuttle that, the more these microbes can do their job of, in the case of fungi, they're, they're fetching nutrients for the plant that then come into the plant body. And when a plant's getting sufficient levels of that particular, it, it's a suite of different things from phosphorus to, to zinc and probably others that we don't completely know about. But in any event, when plants are getting good nutrition, they're able to make a lot of different phytochemicals. And this is part of the flavor profile on, um, you know, in, in our plant foods. And the other thing that we know, you know, for sure, at least in the U.S., is that our breeding, you had mentioned before, you know, your grandmother <laughs> noting how big the apples are. Uh, and that's partly to do with breeding. We can we can breed, you know, whether it's apples or tomatoes or corn or avocados, we can breed for larger fruits. And what that generally means is that you've got more sort of biomass through which uh, a plant can, can place, you know, phytochemicals or minerals, uh, vitamins, and so on. So it's sort of this thing called the dilution effect. We're putting, we're spreading nutrients thinner through a piece of food uh, than, than we, we otherwise would. So, you know, those, those are kind of among the, the things that are going on with taste and flavor. And then just lastly, we also know that nutrients that are really good for us, that our bodies, that our bodies need and can only come through the diet, those actually make up the flavor profile of a good number of fruits, vegetables, and, and animal foods. In the book, we write about it, some research um, actually on tomatoes, where people people were given two types of tomatoes and asked, which one do you like? And everyone's like, we hate this thing called the Floridade. We really like this, this other one. And this other tomato that they liked, um, the folks doing that research did a pretty in-depth analysis, and it revealed that this tomato that everybody liked had higher levels, you know, from, from, you know, 1.5 times to up to three times more of, um, several things that we need, um, omega-3 fats. We don't normally think of tomatoes as having omega-3 fats, but they do. Some, uh, carotenoids were much higher in this tomato that people preferred and also some particular amino acids. So all of this stuff that feeds into the flavor profile is also uh, the nutrient package that our body needs. So there's, there's definitely a link between flavor and taste and sort of nutrient composition that we don't, average person doesn't even think about that, but the next time, you know, you or your listeners are eating something really just, you know, bursting with flavor might be worth just sort of pausing and thinking, wow, what is in this that I am loving? 
and and that my body is loving. So, so, so that's one of the biggest shifts, I think, and we, I was saying in, impactful, your book has been impactful in my life. I think it's changed how I think about how I pay for food. Um, and I, this is actually one of the questions I, I wanted to make sure we got to. So I'm glad we're getting into it early in this conversation. You know, I, the way that it's changed how I think about food is, you know, you normally think about, okay, I'm buying this steak for this much per pound, or I'm buying this, you know, apple for this much per pound. But that's like the overall biomass that you're paying for, not necessarily the nutrient density. And so it's made it very much easier, I think, for me to pay for um, like buying my meat directly from a farmer or buying organic fruits and vegetables versus conventional. It's, you know, yeah, you're paying more, but on a per nutrient basis, you're probably actually paying a lot less because otherwise you're just paying for the water. Um, how have you guys seen that, I guess, play out as, you, you know, the work that you've done in terms of your research, writing the book, talking to a lot of folks, there was a whole chapter around um, I, I believe maybe it wasn't a whole chapter, but there was definitely a section around uh, making the nutrient density more transparent to consumers. Is that something that you guys have thought a little bit more about? Because I, as I talk to people about it, once they understand the concept, it makes total sense to them. But I think there's a there's a lack of information on the nutrient density when you go buy a product. And there's a lot of, call it playing with the labels and the way products are described to sort of trick you into thinking something is more nutritious than it actually is. Yeah, there's a there's a, a whole bunch of questions that that brings up that we could run down. But the, yep. um, you know, we've we've focused a lot, you know, if, if you basically have to eat twice as many calories to get the same amount of nutrition, um, then, you know, that's not necessarily a good thing if you're worried about, you know, overdoing it and in caloric intake. And, you know, and around the world, we've got two very different problems with caloric intake. There's the overconsumption in the westernized world, and there's the underavailability in many parts of the world where hunger is still a very serious um, problem. Um, but one of the things that writing, helped, writing this book with Anne really illuminated to me was that in the world of agriculture, we have to start thinking beyond the problem of simply feeding everybody and worry a lot more about better nourishing everybody and moving beyond feeding the world to better nourishing the world. And that's where thinking about nutrient density really is sort of central. How many calories do we have to consume to get all the other things that we need to maintain our health? And when we, dive, when we dove into that in researching the book, I was really kind of surprised to basically see how the definition of what is a nutrient is used differently in different parts of the scientific literature um, in the sense that um, if you look at sort of the strict definition of a nutrient and the way a lot of a lot of nutritionists use it, it's the things that we actually need to stay alive, which, you know, are important, obviously, um, and calories factor into that as do many uh, major macronutrients. But when you look at what it takes to, for us to stay healthy and to think about, you know, how would we optimize our health? That's where the suites of, of micronutrients and vitamins and the phytochemicals that Anne was talking about earlier all come into play because they serve roles, anti-inflammatory roles, antioxidant roles, different things do different things in our bodies. But if they're non-caloric and, they and we don't need them to survive, then in much of the literature, they're not really sort of considered nutrients. So when people look at comparing how different farming practices affect you know, the nutritional profile of foods, the first thing to look at in those studies is, well, how are they defining a nutrient? You know, what are they considering on the bus in terms of nutrients or off the bus? And if you're thinking about, you know, the kinds of compounds that, that really promote human health beyond human survival, you start thinking about food and nutrient density in a very different way. 
and you think about um, you know, the hidden cost of cheap food has been poorer nutrition. Um, and if we look at in the United States, for example, back in the 1950s, we used to spend about um, twice as much on uh, food as we did on healthcare in terms of our per, you know, per capita prorated um, um, incomes. It's now the opposite. We spend twice as much on healthcare as we do on food. And many of those healthcare expenses are related to the kinds of chronic illnesses and chronic conditions, chronic diseases that can, that can be traced back to dietary roots of which one component is how our food raised, not the sole component, obviously, in terms of looking at human health, we've got, you know, our genes, uh, whether we exercise our lifestyle, what we choose to eat. But what we explore in the book is really, well, what's that other added dimension of how we raise our food and what are we missing from it? If we um, look at conventional agriculture um, relative to other styles of agriculture, and particularly farming practices that build soil health, as we trace in the book, that cascades up into more micronutrients, a better vitamin profile, a better phytochemical profile in our foods, um, and how that all influences human health in terms of helping to manage or quell chronic conditions and chronic diseases is a really interesting connection between agriculture and medicine Absolutely. that hasn't gotten enough attention in the past, which is why we wrote the book. Absolutely. Yeah, we had uh, on the podcast, we had Gabe Brown actually uh, a few episodes mm -hmm. ago. And so we, we dove a little bit into this, but in that episode, one thing we didn't get into, which I'd love to ask you guys, um, is how did we get here? So we, we got into, into that a little bit with Gabe, um, but we spoke a lot more about kind of the medical and the soil health connection in, in that episode. Um, but one thing that would be really interesting to dive into, because you guys made a comment in the book, which is that our soil is probably one of our, arguably maybe the most important national resource that we have um, as a, as a country. And so when you think about it that way, you know, how did we get here where it seems like all the incentives are actually kind of pointed against soil health and are, are just sort of the short term mentality, you know, what got us here? Yeah, well, there's, there's, um, a, a lot to that. And, uh, and I've been thinking and writing about this for a series of books. What's your food aid is actually the, the fourth that we've written in that relates to these kinds of topics. And, Depending on how far back in agricultural history you want to go, we could talk for hours about this, but I'll, I'll try and give you sort of the very, very brief overview is that, um, you know, since the dawn of agriculture, we've basically degraded uh, probably about a third of the world's potential farmland to the point where it's no longer highly productive farmland. So the process of growing food to feed ourselves has, a short, has had a short term benefit. We've tried to maximize, you know, the amount of food that we grow. But if we do it in ways that undermines the health and fertility of the land over the long run between generations, we can we can quite literally degrade the, the foundation for an agricultural civilization. And that's happened in various places around the world. I wrote about all that in a book called Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations back in 2007. And that's what got Anne and I interested in this story of how people have treated their land affects how the land uh, can then treat people. And to make a... a Long story, fairly short, um, but in the westernized world, Western Europe and, and, and uh, post-colonial North America, um, farming practices had so degraded the uh, fertility of the land by the sort of the 1930s-ish that people realized that you could get a very big boost in yields. You could grow more food by using highly mechanized uh, um, uh, practices along with a lot of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. 
Now it was a recipe for boosting yields. It turned out it had an unanticipated, undesirable side effect in terms of, of reducing the nutrient density of many foods um, and in degrading soil fertility, which basically meant we were hooked on the um, fertilize, synthetic fertilizers to actually maintain high yields. So we kind of farmed ourselves into the situation that we find ourselves in. And our policies have our agricultural policies sort of post Second World War were a big uh, a factor in that, but not the only factor. Um, so encouraging the separation, say, of livestock and cropping removed manuring from the cycle of, of farming that actually helped to build soil fertility, specializing in one or two crops. You know, the monocultures actually degraded soil fertility, overuse of synthetic nitrogen fertilizers, degraded soil organic matter. There's a whole litany of pieces of that that we write about in what your food ate and there's a deeper dive in the dirt book but it's all connected to sort of where we were in history as our population really started exploding post second world war and we needed to keep up in terms of calorie provision we overemphasized the production of calories and took our eye off the ball of at the same time trying to promote the nutrient density of those calories and so that takes us to where we sort of are today where we need to sort of look back at conventional practices and go, what could we do to boost the nutrient density while main, of our crops while maintaining high yields? And that's where farmers like Gabe Brown that you, you interviewed a few episodes ago are real innovative in the kind of methods they're using. Um, we interviewed Gabe in writing Growing Revolution, the book before What Your Food Ate. He's got amazing soil and amazing farm and amazing food grown on his farm. Um, he's a good example of the, the kind of thinking we need to sort of uh, adjust to, to try and hit the target of better nourishing the world and not just feeding the world. Absolutely. So one thing that you mentioned there, uh, there's, again, we could be talking for like three hours if we dove into every possible tangent on here. But um, one example that was brought up in the, in the book actually was the World War II diet of uh, the British people. And oh yeah, that was fascinating to me because I would have assumed on sort of rations and, and at least what we're taught about World War II, you know, it was a really restricted diet because they were, they were putting everything into the wartime effort, which, which is what it seems like. But the prescribed diet, you know, just reading a couple of notes from the book, you know, it says dentists notice fewer cavities, rates of anemia de decreased among children, infant maternal mortality drops the lowest levels on record. So did stillbirths and children even grow taller. So talk a little bit about that story, because I thought that was yeah. that was one of the most fascinating things in the book. Yeah, the, the story of the English diet during the Second World War is a really interesting story of a grand experiment on changing the diet of a people at a societal level. Um, and, you know, a, a parallel experiment was going on in continental Europe where um, there were some very, uh, you know, downside examples of what would happen when with a restricted diet and a poor diet and starvation and all that during the Second World War. But the English story was a little different. Uh, they they had a very um, um, a rational plan on what to grow, what to import, how to uh, ration their food, um, and they essentially reduced consumption of sugar. They switched up their meat consumption. They switched up their fat consumption and, and their dairy. But basically, they ran the experiment of having a whole populace eating a healthier diet by design, or not by necessity, in effect, um, a, re a reduced calorie and better um, uh, uh, provisioned diet. 
and they had very positive health outcomes across the board during this horrible wartime experience that the, the British Isles were experiencing. Um, so it's a really good example of what can happen when uh, at a population level, people start eating better. Yeah, I think what what's interesting, there's a lot of interesting things in there, um, you know, both um, about a government advising their people what to do and, and you know, making sure that that's possible. And, and the big difference is in part with with how that was kind of orchestrated and carried out is that it was well known by that time that uh, deficiency in single nutrients was not a direction to go. Like we do not want to deprive people of say vitamin C. We know that causes scurvy. We don't want to deprive people of, you know, the, the range of B vitamins. Those are needed for, you know, all kinds of things in our body. So this was a kind of a diet that it was not, it was not about nutrient deprivation or starvation or, um, you know, severely cutting back on calories. It was really, um, really putting together, uh, eating a eating a diet of fewer calories, but that those calories contained everything that human biology needed. So that, that is really what, um, what's the story there. And I think probably, you know, at that time compared to the just flood of ultra processed foods that, that come at us today, I think part of the reason this diet was so successful and they saw these results is they pretty much, you know, said, you know, no processed, we're, we're cutting back on processed foods here in the English diet because we're, we have to, and this is, you know, this was sort of the manifestation of the wartime effort. I think that's another, another factor in why they saw the health outcomes that they did. You know, they switched from refined flour to, you know, wholemeal flour. Uh, you know, I don't think it was called junk food back then, but, but the equivalent, you know, pretty much dropped out of the English diet. So, yeah. And I think the other interesting thing about that is it didn't, these changes occurred pretty, pretty quickly, right? It, it didn't take a decade later. I mean, within, um, yeah. they, they measured stuff later, but the dietary changes, you know, took effect immediately. And then, you know, outcomes were, were, were measured after that. Yeah, it's a, it's a good example of we sort of think forward in terms of the westernized world where some of our biggest expenses are in the, the healthcare arena. If we started thinking about uh, agriculture as an element of our healthcare system, then how we grow our food, what we subsidize, what we sort of choose to encourage farmers to grow, and, and how, we, how we encourage people to, to uh, pick healthier foods, whether that's through education or for pricing or subsidies or however one might want to think about shaping that. One of the biggest levers that we've got in terms of affecting healthcare into the future is influencing what we're eating and how it's grown. It, it's amazing that food is not viewed as a lever in the healthcare space. Um, that's a whole conversation that Gabe and I had. And uh, yeah. if you, somebody hasn't listened to that episode, I, I encourage you. There's a he went on uh, what can only be described as an epic rant uh, in that in that episode. Um, switching switching gears a, a little bit here because um, I, I want to make sure we hit some of these topics. 
So there, are you guys familiar with a concept called legibility? I know it's a little bit obscure. Have you heard about this before? Well, that would have nothing to do with my handwriting. No, mine either. I have horrible handwriting. But it's, it's from this book called Seeing Like a State. And basically the, the whole kind of the, the concept in a nutshell is that, and this is, this is the example I'm going to give is from the book, but it's, uh, it applies a bit more broadly, which you'll see in a sec. But it effectively means that like a state wants all the variables in their state essentially to be legible. So what people are doing, what they're working on, um, where they live. So having addresses versus like, oh, that guy lives three, uh, you know, take 30 steps from the lake and turn right. Like they want to have a specific address. So this idea of legibility means you have to put a label on everything um, and then be able to define it clearly. I think we've done some of that in the food space uh, and maybe gone a little bit overboard with that. And I think to your point was uh, that you brought up, which is what led to, to this topic, is the single uh, nutrient deficiencies were causing a lot of problems. Figuring out how to solve those was amazing. I, I don't think anybody should downplay that. Those were, those were great. But I think what we've lost is the interplay between all the variables because we, you know, if you look at just a nutrition label, right? There are, you know, I think the main things, obviously, fat, carbohydrates, sugar, protein, cholesterol, sodium, you know, now some of the labels have like potassium, iron, calcium, and maybe a couple others. But the number of, you know, micronutrients is hundreds, if not thousands beyond that. And then the ratios between them matter a lot as well. It's not just, you know, them in a vacuum. So I guess what I'm getting with this is like, there's a balance here between legibility and then just when you get if you get too much into the specific nutrient variables, it's almost too much for the average person to comprehend. So you almost have to simplify it. You just have to eat in a different way. Like, how would you recommend folks who are thinking about this? Like, how would you recommend they simplify this so that they can actually, you know, take some actionable uh, next steps? Yeah, I, I I think one of the one of the key things. Um, about all of, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of a nutrition label and all, all the stuff that's on there and what sort of an alphabet soup, you know, in a way all of that is. And in part, these nutrition labels came about because as processed foods came into the marketplace, government is trying to ensure that, oh, that these processed foods have the nutrients that are known to be important for health, that they have those in sufficient amounts. And like you've already said, we don't know all there is to know about that. So that tells you these nutrition labels are not the be all end all. Um, I think the, the, the advice that I would give a person about, okay, yeah, it's good to know uh, a nutrition, some of the things on a nutrition <clears throat> label. Um, but you're almost better off given that human beings are omnivores and we have always eaten widely across the plant world and the animal world. And we, we know also that processing foods, you know, taking a plant, uh, and processing tends to happen a lot more with plant foods than animal foods, but taking these various kinds of plants, deconstructing them down to these, you know, really simplified things and then reassembling them into other foods. We've never had 
up until modern times, we've never had those kinds of foods in the human diet. And all of the research and evidence is pretty much pointing to ultra processed foods are doing us no favor. So I would kick those entirely out of the human diet were it, were it up to me. And, and so with those out of the diet, then you're just on your whole foods. And there's where I say, go for it, go for diversity, diversity in your fruits, your vegetables, and in your, your meat and your dairy choices. Because as you're, as you're picking and choosing from among all of these things, this is how in concert with your body wisdom, you're going to be ending up with a, a balanced sort of a, a balanced sort of nutrient portfolio, so to speak. If all you ever do is sit around and eat, you know, bananas and peanuts and coconuts and stuff like that, you're missing out on some of the great nutrients in, um, in animal products. And on the other hand, if all you're doing is eating a really a diet quite heavy in animal products, you're probably taking, you're probably not taking in enough phytochemicals, which plants are rich in. So the way I see it is, is you want to eat those foods that are kind of known for uh, their nutrient density. And certainly in plants, we know phytonutrients. For animals, we know, oh, it's a nice balance of omega-6 and omega-3 fats. That's what we want out of our animal foods, as well as um, there are some phytochemicals that transfer through to, to meat and milk. So that's that's kind of where I'm at on how to think about eating in the modern world. Yeah. So you can summarize that as you know, a, a, a diverse diet of minimal of, of, of fresh whole foods. Uh, and if you eat meat and dairy products, um, uh, 100% grass fed is the way to go to get that omega three to six balance that Anne was just mentioning. Yeah, there were some fascinating anecdotes in the book, like uh, farmed salmon versus a well-raised uh, grass-fed steak, having more omega, a better omega-3 to omega-6 ratio than the salmon, farm-raised salmon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And fit, salmon is obviously marketed as a way to get omega-3s. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's right. amazing and, and once you dive of, in. And part of that depends on, on what the salmon ate as well, because farmed salmon Absolutely. doesn't stack up as good as wild salmon. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep, yeah, that's exactly. right. And so, yeah, and you can take, you know, any animal, this is, you know, and it, what's interesting to me about those studies, you know, you change the diet of a cow or a fish or whatever other um, animal that's a part of the human diet. And you get away from their innate biology and what it is that their metabolism, physiology, organs, and tissues are, um, have evolved to consume. You get away from that and it just, things start to uh, kind of unravel in the health and biology of that animal. And so you look at this for salmon, for chickens, for pigs, for cows, and then you ask yourself, People. Well, what does that mean then for me as a human being, if I've got a diet that's 80% ultra processed foods and that, that, that has, has never been a part of the human diet, you know, up until the last second of, you know, human evolution, that's about all I need to know to start, you know, thinking more about and changing what, what is in my diet. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is uh, one of the issues, another issue. I mean, there's so many, again, areas that we can dive into. But one area that, that you kind of brought up here is I think nutritional studies uh, you've called out really well in this in this book because I think there are it's not even just nutritional. I think anything around like lifestyle is so affected by what you eat and what you eat, how it gets processed is so affected by what else you eat. Like uh, a couple, you know, anecdotes and jumping off points, and then you guys feel free to take it in whatever direction you want. But the, the two that, that stick out in my head from the book is the soybean section where I've always assumed, you know, soybeans are not great I, and I, I've avoided them. And then one thing that kind of caught my eye in this book is, Apparently, soybeans are processed differently depending on your gut microbiome. And for some people, it seems that it has actually had, like, it seems like it's a really great product for or a really great plant for a lot of people. And, you know, the whole country of Japan eats a lot of soybeans has gone really well for them. Uh, on the other hand, you know, in the US, maybe soybeans aren't raised the same way. I mean, there's a whole lot of variables here. But my point is, there's a lot of studies one way or the other on soybeans but it's not really doesn't really show you anything because it seems like it's processed differently depending on how who you are. So the studies don't necessarily tell you how it's processed. Then the second one that caught my eye, which I have here in my notes, which I thought was fascinating and again relates to Japan, is how smoking is like very differently processed by your body depending on your diet. And there was a study from Japan it looks like which showed that people like the lung cancer rates for people who ate green and yellow vegetables versus those who didn't was half the mortality rate for the people who did eat the vegetables versus those who didn't. And I mean, that's fascinating. That's again, it shows you like something that they do a study that says, oh, smoking leads to this kind of lung cancer risk. Well, what else are you doing in your diet or in your life that might impact that that rate? And so not to say like smoking is a good thing, but just it's very interesting that the way we do studies is a very single variable. Like we try to do it in the single variable thing, but none of us live in that way. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, feel free to take that in whatever direction you want. But I thought that was a great way that you guys framed it in the book that there's all these variables that are out there and your diet is obviously a huge one um, that impacts all these lifestyle yeah. choices. Yeah. The most interesting thing to me in doing the research for this book and writing is that the more we went along, Neil, and, and by the time we got to the end of the book, um, and especially with studies involving human beings and nutrition and lifestyle, as you said, it made me realize, yeah, we're all human beings, homo sapiens, but the biological diversity across the human population is immense. We, um, I'm not sure, you know, we, we thoroughly have a handle on all of that biological diversity because you, you also take that and you put it next to our exposure to toxins, um, the epigenome, you know, our parents and grandparents, what kinds of things, um, did they experience in their lives? And it explains, you know, a lot about some of these studies that, that either you, they're not replicatable or you get different results in, uh, say, a cohort that is 60 to 80-year-old African-American women versus, you know, 30 to 40-year-old, you know, white males. So, so this is another, I, I guess, another 
part of my argument for why uh, omnivory is really valuable for human beings and why eating a diversity of foods is um, we're probably doing ourselves more favors by sticking to, to diversity and omnivory than anything else. Because our chances are across the human diet and across all the food sources, whatever it, the particular, per, per, whatever particular vulnerabilities or strengths relative to say um, disease or infections or what have you, you'll be getting something in your diet that's going to keep the bad stuff at bay and that's going to support the things that, that you need. And, and this is again, you know, going back to the big argument of the book, why we need to pay attention to what our food ate, because we're trying to take all this immense biological variability and, uh, and, and pair it up with, what's best for, uh, for a human being. Yeah. And I think as we, as we wrap up, um, maybe let's end on a positive note. So one, one thing in the book that I thought was great that you guys ended with was, um, it looks like the acreage dedicated to regenerative farming has gone up a tremendous amount over the last 20 years. I think the public awareness of it has gone up a lot. You know, what are, what are you all seeing in terms of how people, people are thinking about this, governments are thinking about this, um, you know, what are sort of the changes since you guys started on this journey many years ago? Um, you know, how, how has it evolved since then? And, 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 you know, what gives you hope when you wake up? Well, you know, um, when I started writing about the, the history of how people have treated their land and soil degradation and, and highlighting the importance of soil health going forward, you know, 15, 20 years ago, there weren't a lot of people thinking about it or talking about soil health. It was kind of still like, you know, is that a thing? You know, can soil have health? You now, it, um, you go to farming conferences now, you know, 15, 20 years later, and everybody's talking about soil health. People are interested in regenerative agriculture. I think the awareness of the issue and the importance of soil and how we treat the land has really grown quite a lot. Um, in the U.S., something like a third of the farmland is now is farmed no-till, which is one key component of a regenerative approach. Um, but if you look uh, across the U.S. at the farmers who are really doing a full-on regenerative farming um, exercise um, or practices, it's still down probably about 4 or 5% at the tops. There's a lot of room to grow. But seeing as how it's grown from almost nothing 20 years ago, uh, the, the pace of adoption is is great. Um, it's accelerating. Lots of interest in it. I'm actually very optimistic that more regenerative practices will become the sort of the new style of conventional farming in the sense that most people are doing it over the course of the next few decades. And what's turned me into an optimist on that is actually the simplest uh, observation is that farmers can actually save a lot of money by adopting regenerative practices. And, and I find that on a, a source of optimism on two levels. One, we respond really well to incentives. I mean, if you can basically show a farmer a way to spend less on fertilizer and diesel and agrochemicals um, and grow as much so their, their income can stay the same, but their expenses drop, that's a recipe for a more profitable farm and for that catching on over time. And that's what I've seen in, in communities around the world where regenerative farming has taken root is that the farmers are convincing other farmers to do it because it's actually working for them. Um, and so it's a nice case where the environmental benefits that flow from that, that we could do a whole nother episode on, um, actually align with the economic benefits that flow to farmers. Um, and 
that's actually sort of a huge, it, it, it's not to be under um, appreciated in terms of incentives going forward. So I'm, I'm actually pretty optimistic that over the next couple decades, we're going to see some major shifts in agriculture. And if we do, if regenerative farming practices that can enhance the nutrient density, as well as, as farming profitability and some other environmental benefits, um, but if growing better food can become cheaper over time, because more people are adopting practices that are regenerative, that'll be a benefit for everybody. Because, I mean, the big reason that organic food and that regeneratively grazed food costs more in the marketplace today is there's a greater demand than there is a supply. It's not more expensive to actually produce on average. You know, individual farms may vary, individual crops may vary. Sure. Um, but if you can reduce the expenses and maintain harvest, prices will come down eventually. Yeah. And I think anecdotally, I've noticed the other pieces as consumers become more aware that uh, regenerative farming is a thing and what it is and what it means for their own health and for their, you know, for the environment, um, their willingness to seek out those products actually is, is probably increasing as well. I've seen um, several products actually in the grocery store lately have been market. I mean, even Kettle and Fire, which is uh, Justin's company, they even have a whole line of bone broth now that's regenerative agriculture based. And they must have done some research, I'm sure, on that consumers care about this. And I've seen that product in Whole Foods and I've seen it in some other grocery stores. So I think the awareness part, to your point, you know, as the as consumers demand it more, probably more farmers will move in that direction as well, because it's to your point, it's just incentives. So, yeah, that's that's really fascinating. I think organic is another one that's you guys have brought up in the in the book, which may be worth touching on. Um, I think the the definition of organic, uh, I never realized what the, you know, what the definition was. I just always assumed, oh, organic's probably better for you. What I didn't realize, which you, you all had, I think, mentioned in the book is how some organic products aren't grown in soil, which I didn't realize, uh, that little nuance. So, uh, maybe just quickly explain that for, for the audience. Cause I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we, we, uh, mentioned and in, in explore in the book is just how variable, practices are within the labels that we tend to think of as conventional or organic. Um, and the, you know, the, the, the key differences one always finds in comparisons of organic food versus conventional food is organic has, has less in the way of pesticides and agrochemicals on it because there's fewer that are used in that production. And it's generally defined as through what kind of um, products farmers will not be using on their farms. Um, but one of the loopholes in there is essentially whether or not you can grow organic food hydroponically without any soil at all, which runs against the spirit of sort of the original um, uh, plan for uh, or organic production and certification in the U.S. Um, and there's lots of arguments over that today. Um, but, you know, on average, organic food is going to be better for you. It's going to have less agrochemicals and generally it will be raised in ways that uh, treat the soil better. But many organic farmers also uh, plow a lot. And the, the story I wrote about in the Dirt Book 15 years ago was how, you know, essentially organic agriculture in past societies had degraded the land through too much tillage. Um, and, but there's ways to actually plow in an organic farm that doesn't degrade the land. It's all about the system of farming. And what we argue in What's Your Food Ape is that whether your conventional farmer or an organic farmer, a biodynamic farmer, an agroforester, whatever kind of style of farming one is doing, that we ought to be paying far more attention to the effects on the health of the soil 
because that's the mechanism that translates up into the healthfulness of our crops and our livestock that that raise that uh, in our diet, um, and that the labels that we use to identify different styles of farming today don't fall out perfectly along the lines of looking at the effects on the land. But that's where we should be focusing. Yeah, and I, I and then with respect to the um, the organic question, so okay. What qualifies as organic is plants, you know, grown indoors, basically on a chemical feed, chemical nutrient feed system qualifies as organic. I don't think that's what most consumers have in mind when they go pick out a head of lettuce or carrots or something like that. We have, you know, grown in soil is, is what we're thinking of, not indoor, you know, kind of laboratory ish environment. The other thing that's little known um, is you, you know, you can get organic meat and organic milk and organic eggs. Um, But what isn't really understood about that is that you could have uh, animals in, say, cows in some kind of a confined system where they do not have access to pasture. And what they're eating are these, these total mixed rations of uh, organically grown grain. And if there's anything uh, worse for ruminant biology, so ruminants are cows, sheep, and goats, uh, it is eating a 100% grain diet, whether it's grown organically or conventionally. That wrecks an animal. It wrecks the fat balance. And so, and yet it's organic. So a consumer doesn't really know that if they're going to go pick out, you know, a steak, a pork chop, or chicken. All that means is that whatever feed a a producer decides to feed their animals, it needs to be organically grown. And so organic doesn't, in the case of many animal products, it doesn't address the nutrient, nutritional consequences of what that animal, you know, might be eating. That's one of its I think one of the biggest flaws in the organic system is around um, is around sort of what animals are what well allowed to eat and what producers yeah. can feed them. back back to what your food ate basically yeah, yeah. <laughs> well and yeah. I think that speaks to the importance of um, knowing where your food comes from and who's growing your food or or, or who the farmer is because uh, I think you know there's always going to be I mean the food industry spends billions of dollars to hijack your taste buds essentially and they're gonna i mean there's they're gonna use every trick in the book to try to cut a corner and get a advantage you know where they can make you think you're getting a certain type of product and charge you that cost of that type of product but still have the cost savings of feeding the animal the all-grain diet you know just happens to be organic great you know there's that they're gonna do that but the thing is if you know your farmer you know where the food's coming from it's a you have a lot better shot. I know not everybody has the ability to do that, but that is, uh, the, that's the safest bet, uh, to, to go about doing this. So, yeah, and I mean, yeah. in some senses, yeah, it's almost like as eaters, we kind of need sort of, I mean, from kindergarten on just sort of some basic education about, all right, what is it that in, you know, herbivorous animal, like a cow, what do they eat? Oh, they eat plants, living plants, out in a pasture, ideally a pasture that's got uh, wide, 
wide species diversity because these animals have a biology that allows them to pick and choose what to eat in ways that balance their nutrition and self-medicate and live a good life. And if I think consumers sort of understood some of the basic biology behind a chicken, a cow, a pig, you could then easily ascertain that's not the kind of chicken I want to eat, or indeed that is the kind of chicken I want to eat. And likewise for plants, if we, if we understood that, that plants really have a whole protection and defense system that is in part built upon communication and relationships with their microbial partners around the root system, we would then understand, oh, probably we, you know, we, we want farming done in ways that support that kind of biology. Because even though our crops and, and livestock are domesticated animals, they still, um, we have not stripped everything out of these, these plants and animals by any means, Neil. None are sitting ducks, so to speak, out there in the field or the pasture. It's just that the ways in which we uh, grow plants and raise animals has really impaired their innate biology that that has actually, you know, worked well um, for their for their own evolution up until you know modern farming kind of got over modern, so to speak. Yeah, I thought that was another fascinating thing in the book. I mean, if any listener can't tell, there's every part of the book is fascinating. I've said that probably a hundred <laughs> times now that this part was so fascinating. Um, the uh, the section where the animals choose what to eat based on you know, deficiencies that they're having or medical conditions that they're having or something that's lacking in their environment. I mean, that part was, that part was fascinating, but honestly, in high, again, so many of these things, it's like, once you read it, then you're like, oh, that's so obvious. Otherwise, how else do, do all these wild animals survive? You know, it, it wouldn't work otherwise. So of course, cows do the same thing. Like they're not robots that are invented by human beings. They're actual animals. So yeah, it, I thought that was fascinating. And I think um, to your point, that's another thing that gets like, it's not just grass is not just grass, like grass is not grass, I guess, right? This is a point that Gabe had brought right. up as well. The grass itself has different nutritional profiles for the cows. And then that all cascades up into the steak that you eat or the liver that you eat. You know, it's, a, it's, it's not just, they're not, grass is not like just a commodity that you're just all grass right. is the same. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. In fact, yeah, I, um, I had this one slide in, you know, for public talks and stuff. It was a great, it was a great image, Neil. It was, it was a cow and falling out of its mouth was just like all this grass. And I looked at that and I thought, no, this isn't what, this is not what we're saying. Get rid of this slide. We want, you know, at least three to five different plant species, you know, falling out of the plant's mouth, not just this, you know, long get out of the cow's mouth, not just this, you know, one piece of green, green grass and just get that point across that, that herbivores, even more than omnivores, um, really rely on their body wisdom and on a diverse set of plants so they can pick and choose what they need. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, at the risk of this episode going too long, because if I go through the rest of my topics, we'll be here for another hour. We'll have to do a part two once I finish uh, finish the other book. Uh, 
where can people, you know, who want to dive in, where can they find you guys? I'm going to link to a lot of different things that we've talked about today in the show notes. So if somebody wants to dive into that, you can go to the show notes, make sure you pick up the book. Um, but if people want to, to connect and dive deeper, uh, what, where should they go and, and what should they do? Yeah, we, we, we've got a website, digtogrow.com. And so if people aren't familiar, if this is the first thing they've heard about us or the books, then go to the website and there's a synopsis of all the books right there. And the website is, what is it, Dave? It's digtogrow.com. Dig the, and the number two, grow.com. There's a description of all the books, including the new one. And people who are really interested in digging into the weeds behind this book <laughs> can find the full uh, list of a thousand peer-reviewed uh, sources uh, that you could download. But we didn't include them in the book because there would have been an extra 60 pages of references at the end of the book. But if you want to know about the science that's behind the book, you can download the full, the full, the full meal deal there uh, from our website um, and dig in away to your heart's content. Yeah. Um, and the books are available, you know, on, on Amazon, your favorite independent bookstore in your neighborhood ought to be able to order them as well, or from the publisher, WW Norton. Um, just Google what your food ate and you'll go, you'll, you'll find it. Yeah. And probably showing up in that Google search too. If people want to, uh, there's various public talks that we've done that are, you know, roaming around out there on the interweb. So, mm -hmm. uh, that's another place if people want to get more info. Are, are you guys working on another book, uh, number five or not, not, not at this point? We, we're almost at the, we're almost past the, oh my God, I'll never write another damn book phase. <laughs> So probably, probably. Yeah. and guess what? yeah, and guess what, Neil? It'll probably have something to do uh, whether we do another book together or or each kind of pursue some separate interests. You know, there's a high likelihood it's going to have something to do so with soil, with plants, with uh, our health, nature, and so on. You yeah, guys just it's love, all uh, You guys just love dirt, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I do think there the is a follow-up book, easy, like an, not an easy one to write, but but a very logical next step book would be um, the soil and our and the healthcare system. Like I think there's there's a lot to yeah. be uh, unpacked there, which you guys started touching on definitely in this book. But I think there's if you just think about how fast healthcare expenses are going up and and how much oh. we spend as a country, and there's not very many points of leverage to really efficiently reduce that amount and improve people's lives. This is, this one feels like the, I mean, I actually haven't seen another solution. This might be, this plus education might be like the two levers that we have as a country. Uh, so yeah, that, that would be a fun one to read. I don't know how fun it would be to write, but it'd be a, it'd be a fun one to read for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, because basically what's good for the land's good for us too. So it's the logic we, I think we set the stage for that with what your food ate and, yeah. uh, our hope is that people will take it seriously and go forward because that is one of the biggest levers that we have for affecting public health for generations to come would be to restore restore fertility to our soils and to, um, um, shall we say, reform agriculture. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you both for, for coming on. This was this is a lot of fun and uh, I look forward to, to the next one. All Great. right. Good. Thanks a lot, Neil. Thank yeah, you thanks, guys. Neil.